Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, if there is one thing more comprehensive than the Labor Party's dominance of Australian politics, it is the party's agenda to destroy everything about this country that conservatives love. Just as surely as the sun rises over the subsidised rooftop solar panels of Sydney and sets over the shark-infested beaches of Perth, so too does Labor work tirelessly every day to re remake the nation into a woke dystopia. Nothing is too sacred and no irony too hypocritical for these social engineers, elitists and gravy train junkies. Let's start with population. Conservatives would prefer it if the government kept our immigration intake at or below a level commensurate with the nation's housing stock. But the federal government doesn't even know how many people are coming in anymore. In January, The Guardian reported, Australia is on track for net migration of more than 300,000 people this year, more than 25% higher than Treasury forecasts, due to a surge in arrivals. This figure comes from former Immigration Department Deputy Secretary Abul Rizvi, who said, quote, I've never seen anything like this in 30 years. It's out of the realm of anything we've seen before. The excess intake is mostly people who are visiting relatives, then applying onshore for a more permanent arrangement, or overseas students who are, Rizvi says, using student visas to settle in Australia and find work instead. And work isn't hard to find, given that Australian kids these days, brainwashed by our schools to think the world is ending and concepts of sacrifice and hard work compromise their character and values, see mundane types of employment as beneath them. But even Rizvi's alarming predictions might now be undercooked. The Australian reports today that Australia will experience the biggest two-year population surge in its history, with an extra 650,000 migrants this financial year and next, driving a 900,000 jump in the number of residents. The government is letting in more migrants than its own Treasury Department has forecast, and the boffins in Canberra are now crunching the numbers before the May budget. No doubt those numbers are not going to come down in favour of the people who've lived here and dutifully paid their taxes to the government all along. We're talking about adding the equivalent of the population of Wollongong every year. Where will these people live? The federal government has cobbled together the Housing Australia Future Fund, which will borrow $10 billion as if we aren't in enough debt already, and spend, it on, and spend it on what it calls affordable housing, which is a euphemism for high-density prison cells. If you've driven through any inner urban area of Australia lately, you'll know what I mean. Soulless vertical concrete blocks for single people, or couples with a small dog instead of children, with a crappy late-night convenience store on the ground floor surrounded by roads made congested by unused bike lanes. This is the opposite of how conservatives see a home and neighbourhood, 
which was eloquently described by Robert Menzies in his Forgotten People speech 81 years ago as a, quote, little piece of earth which is ours. This is how he affectionately described his own piece of earth. My home is where my wife and children are. The instinct to be with them is the great instinct of civilized man. The instinct to give them a chance in life to make them leaners, not lifters, is a noble instinct. Well, apart from Labor's proposal to build these affordable cell blocks with borrowed money and give them to the feckless dependents it now calls its electoral base, the Queensland Labor government has another plan. Limit private landlords to one rental price hike a year. Yeah, that'll fix it. To its credit, the Queensland government last year also announced $200 million for infrastructure in new expedited housing developments. And in case you have any doubts about Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk's sincerity, here's a photo of her courtesy of Channel 9, wearing a high-vis vest and pointing to an architectural diagram. But this plan to expedite new developments was announced last year as if it was a brilliant, innovative concept. Ask any conservative and they will say, Australia is a nation of tradies with endless, endless empty space where new homes can be built. There would not be a housing shortage if governments, especially Labor ones, hadn't put a stranglehold on development in the first place. Labor, and it must be said coalition as well, the coalition as well, have been reluctant to approve new housing developments partly because clearing bushland to build new suburbs infuriates the large cohorts of swinging environmental voters and annoys existing real estate owners whose financial plans rely largely on low housing supply perpetually pushing up the value of their own primary asset. Last year, during the federal election campaign, Anthony Albanese frequently repeated the promise to reduce power bills by $275 a year. That promise was quietly deleted from his campaign website in November, six months after he won office. Yesterday, the likelihood of him delivering this promise went from, did I say that, to tell them they're dreaming. This is because Labor this week caved in to the demands of the Greens party to put a so-called hard cap on emissions, which will drive up the cost of producing gas and coal, as well as drive away investors in new extraction projects. The Australian's environment editor, Graham Lloyd, said this, quote, the Greens have secured a bloody-minded victory over Labor that will impose high costs on energy producers and the economy in a way that does not apply to our international competitors. So not only will Australia have a radically higher population with nowhere near enough cramped apartment blocks to house them, but the other resource of which we have an abundance, fuel for cheap, reliable energy, will also be reduced. The Greens also forget that fertiliser is made from natural gas, and by increasing the price of gas, the cost of food will rise too. Pretty soon, all we will be able to afford is tinned food. 
Which is just as well because the Federal Health Department is busy getting ready for the next time it needs to lock us up in our homes. The department is, quote, working closely with the global community, including the World Health Organization to reform and strengthen global health systems. These include updates to the international health regulations and the development of a new pandemic response agreement. This means, if not in theory, then in practice, that Australia will, de will cede decision-making regarding lockdowns and vac vaccines to the WHO. You'll remember the WHO as the clowns who still clung to the theory in 2021 that the COVID virus was created by a bat long after the least interested casual observer knew it was made in a Chinese lab. Why would we let them tell us what to do? Well, maybe this is your answer. Bill Gates, who had a private meeting with our Prime Minister in Sydney in January, is a big fan of pandemic preparedness. In the New York Times last week, he said the world was unprepared for COVID and remains unprepared for the next pandemic, which you can bet is just around the corner. He proposed creating what he calls a global fire department for pandemics. I'm, op I'm optimistic about a network that the WHO and its partners are building called the Global Health Emergency Corps. This network of the world's top health emergency leaders will work together to get ready for the next pandemic. Just as firefighters run drills to practice responding to a fire, the emergency corps plan to run drills to practice for outbreaks. The exercises will make sure that everyone, governments, healthcare providers, emergency health workers, knows what to do when a potential outbreak emerges. Well, you know who else will need to know what to do? The cops and the military. Here's a recent video produced by the Australian Army depicting what it calls population protection control, training involving realistic scenarios. Again, this is not the sort of army that we conservatives would like us to have. We're more into soldiers who fight other soldiers, not insurgents who look suspiciously like anti-lockdown protesters. And just to complete the picture of how far Australia has changed lately, few politicians other than Moira Deeming, Malcolm Roberts, Pauline Hanson and Ralph Babbitt showed any support for visiting women's rights campaigner Kelly J. Keane during her recent tour of Australia. The tour was opposed by defenders of rights for transgender men to use women's spaces. And those people these days have the sort of political advantage that makes conservatives shake their heads in disbelief. Today, Victorian Premier Dan Andrews posted this. Today, we're boosting funding for LGBTIQ organisations to deliver more vital mental health and support services because the debate of the last week has been toxic and for trans Victorians, it's been deeply personal. Well, it was pretty toxic and personal for Kelly J. Keane too, Dan. She was certainly surrounded, she was often surrounded by people who wanted to do her serious harm and at one stage in New Zealand, thought her life was in danger. Where does this transgender stuff lead to? Well, tragically, we saw a sample of it in Tennessee this week, 
when a girl who had possibly been prescribed testosterone shot up her former primary school killing three kids and three adults before gunning, being gunned down herself. Add that to the population housing crisis, higher prices for energy and food, the government ceding control during a pandemic to the WHO, and Australian soldiers training to seek attack dogs onto Australian protesters, and you should have an absolute feast for the Liberal Party, which finds itself in opposition across the mainland. How eagerly are they relishing the opportunity to stop this systematic destruction of everything that makes Australia a great place to live. Well, let's ask commentator and University of Queensland law academic, James Allen. James, welcome. Well, I heard that introduction and I feel like I might have to go and slip my wrist, but uh, <laughs> can't really find anything to disagree with. Well, I've, I've, I'm contacting you to put a positive spin on it, James. I'm, I'm hoping you can. Let, let's get straight maybe, to the point. Maybe though. you need to talk to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to start so pessimistically. Let's, it's, it's all uphill from here, James. So, yeah, well, look, on the, on the massive population increase, there, no conservative parties are representing the views of uh, sort of conservative voters. I mean, sort of Trump was a little. Uh, Boris, you know, in Britain, they can't get the numbers under control at all. I think one of the reasons is just economic. They are doing such a bad job with the economy. Uh, that they rely on this, and in many ways it's a bogus measure, but GDP measures economic activity. If you let people in, it goes up. What mm. almost no Australians seem to realize is through the you know nine years of coalition government, we had, a, what, three recessions? If you looked at um, GDP per person, every time they say GDP, a person with a brain should just tune them out. Of course GDP goes up if you just blow the numbers. But what matters to people is, Per person, how are you doing? And, you know, Japan has no immigration at all, and they have stayed even with us. So while we're letting, you know, billions of people in, they're not letting anybody in. But in terms of GDP per person, you know, they're doing the same as we are. Other and than, so other, they but other than GDP. In but other than GDP, do you think they're, they're bringing them in because it suits their, their demographics? Well, I mean, you might think that, but then that doesn't explain why for nine years the coalition ran massive numbers of people, except during the pandemic. I mean, they're just stupid because most of the people coming in aren't likely to be coalition voters. I mean, I, I, I just do not understand the Morrison government at all. I mean, I, I was a huge critic of Turnbull, but in some ways now I think Morrison was even worse. It's hard to believe that. So when I say that, I mean really, really bad Turnbull. And Morrison, oh, just hopeless. Yeah. Well, so at any rate, I don't understand why the coalition did. I think with labor, partly they see that these people coming in will be future labor voters. Yeah. You know, the coalition doesn't have them. You can't find two people that have two brain cells between them who are in the party room. But it, why has Mr. Dutton not come out against the voice? It's a sure winner. He's afraid of what the ABC thinks of him. You know how many people watch the ABC and vote for Mr. Dutton? Yeah. <laughs> They're mutually exclusive, yes. Well, Not I mean, many. If, if they watch the ABC, they're constantly reminded how bad Mr. Dutton is. So, uh, you know, they, and the number is extremely well, you know, a low. Few, a few elderly people who are watching Poirot re reruns and stuff, but... Uh, well, the, I mean, the, the danger with The Voice is that it's going to permanently change Australia. It will change the way we're governed. You know, they're basically lying to us, the, the Albanese government. And, uh, you know, when you look at the actual wording he's announced 
uh, it's pretty clear that uh, it opens the door to go to court, to the high court on everything. Uh, They're saying it's only things that are directly affecting uh, Aboriginals, but it's not. It doesn't say that. It's potentially any law. It does give certain people special rights. It doesn't matter how they sell it. Some Australians will be able to vote or at least have a say in who goes on The Voice and for Parliament. And the rest of us will just get a say in Parliament. And that'll be entrenched in the Constitution. So, you know, there's going to be one set of rules for some people. And I know I know the proponents say, well, it's not race-based. And you can make that argument because in a scientific sense, race doesn't make much sense. I accept that. But in a loose and, you know, fast and easy way, everyone knows what you're talking about when you talk. So based on characteristics you uh, get through your genes, some people will get one set of rules and another group of people will get another set of rules. And, you know, that never works out very well in a liberal democracy. And I don't understand what more information Mr. Dutton needs. I mean, I, I don't know. Is he waiting to sort of walk to Damascus and have some sort of conversion on the way there? Who knows what he's waiting for? I, I, first of all, he's got to fire Julian Leeser. How is that man his, his spokesman? I mean, I don't know how many people in the party room are, are in favor of the voice, maybe five. You know, and he puts one of them in the role of uh, spokesperson for Aboriginal affairs. Get him out. Put Jacinda Price in. Well, indeed, Jacinta is is fighting a pretty lonely battle, really. Now, let's just look Where at this. Where are they? Well, indeed. But let, let's let's get away from the voice for this for a sec and and see if we can find some sort of rationale when it comes to uh, the environment and energy. One of the interesting developments over the past couple of decades in Australian politics is that Labor has become the party for what might be described as the guilty rich, people who want to pay some kind of penance for having big homes and cars, while the Liberal Party has become the party for people who just want to have a job, raise a family and get the government out of their lives. Now, the Labor and the Greens are putting a hard cap on emissions this week which will punish some of Australia's biggest employers. Now, this is a pretty good opportunity for the party that now seems to represent workers uh, to come out swinging. Well, why aren't they, James? Any idea? Well, look, you're totally right, Fred. We have a a preferential voting system which slows down the trends you're seeing in Britain and Canada and the US. It's pretty clear from the data, you know, Hillary Clinton took the 100 wealthiest counties back in 2016. Biden took almost all of them. Rich people, I'm, I'm generalizing, but the kind of people who 40 years ago tended to vote right of center, they now vote left of center. When you go into an upmarket inner city coffee shop with people driving Porsches, they don't vote right. Now I'm generalizing. And so what you see is that the kind of coalitions that work to elect conservatives are the kind that Boris put together or Trump, you know, suburban voters, people who care about free speech, people who want to fight the culture wars, right? Those kind of, that's a majority of the population. But the trouble is the Liberal Party is obsessed with the teal seats. If you want to win the teal seats, you pretty much have to be Labour and the Greens and maybe worry about the superannuation accounts of the uber wealthy. You know, I don't want to vote for parties like that. I understand what a bad policy it is to take away people's superannuation. But if those rich people are going to vote against me on culture wars, on energy, on everything else, I frankly, my view is let them take their superannuations because really the only way to win as a coalition right now, and and you can win, they should have been fighting the New South Wales election out in Western Sydney. They didn't. 
They tried to win the teal seats. It's hopeless. Get rid of Matt Keane. Get rid of, I mean, what did, did Parate do? He brought in the main advisor for Morrison as his main advisor. So what, you look around for a guy who's a, you know, a complete failure, uh, and then you hire him so that you can be a complete failure. I just really don't understand what they're doing at all. I, I think the political class has captured the party and they don't really represent you and me at all. No, at all. No. Well, and there's a, there's a big issue that, that still remains unexamined in Australia that, uh, that killed thousands of people and destroyed countless livelihoods, conspicuously not mentioned once during the New South Wales election. This I'm talking, of course, about the lockdowns and the vaccine mandates. Now, James, you're a, you're a man of the world. You just come back from overseas. By world standards, how do you rate the Australian government's response to the latest revelations that lockdowns and vaccines killed more people than they saved? Look, it's not a revelation. Anyone who is following the data, I mean, I write for The Spectator Australia. We came out against them in March 2020. Nothing that has happened since then. I mean, you already knew that... Uh, you know, people under 30 had about one one thousandth the risk of dying from COVID as those over 75. So we have ruined the lives of young people. We have taken from the poor to give to the old. You know, we we it was the best two years ever to be billionaires. Ever, we spent like crazy and we printed money and the young people have to pay that back. So, you know, it was a terrible response in our in our uh, country. Right now, as I speak, Sweden has the lowest cumulative excess deaths. That means you count how many people were expected to die. Australia is running at 15 to 17% above expected deaths. We're doing really badly, but no one talks about it on the ABC or Channel 7 or Channel 9. You know, the same people who are running case counts during COVID, which are meaningless and scaring the bejesus out of people, now that the facts are really bad and they show up the press for the sort of groveling PR agents for authoritarian government that they were, uh, we don't hear anything, nothing. So nobody who's looking at the facts, and if you want to go and read the lockdown uh, files that the Telegraph has printed, you can see what the actual politicians were doing. They, they were, you know, they, they were aiming to scare the bejesus out of people. They, they imposed rules they knew would do nothing. I would love to get uh, the emails and the and the WhatsApp messages that went, went between the political class in this country. It would be shocking. Just remember, Scott Morrison never once could find it in himself to criticize anything Dan Andrews did. While the Victorian police were beating up, you know, people and shoving around pregnant women, Mr. Morrison couldn't find anything, not a single thing to criticize about this. Well, the, so, uh, the, the, I mean, the point we're trying to make here, though, James, is that this should be an absolute smorgasbord for a truly liberal politician and party. It's a sure win, but you have to criticise your colleagues. Is, is that what's holding forget. Peter Dutton back? Well, I think so. He was, in the, he was a cabinet minister in the government that signed off on every heavy-handed, thuggish, sort of scientifically illiterate thing that we did. So it's very hard for him to turn around and say, you know, look, everything we did was completely awful. But you know what? Labor would be worse. That's the only argument we ever hear. You know, we may be terrible, we may be awful, but you know what, guys? Labor would be worse. It's not really a politically saleable message, is it? <laughs> James, I was hoping hoping you'd cheer me up, but I don't think it's worked. Look, James. Um, yeah, well. I'm going to have a drink. Have a drink. That works. <laughs> Make it a double. Good on you, James. Make it a double. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for your time, James.
That's all right. No problem. All right. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. Alan Jones is up at 8 p.m. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and more by going to adh.tv or downloading our app. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7 p.m. Good night.